Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Putin has offered to provide gas supplies to a severely weakened EU via the surviving leg of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Also, President Biden says he will not meet with President Putin, and the White House has unveiled its ultra-hawkish foreign policy strategy. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Mark Sloboda. Mark is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. I got to start off with this story, Mark. Russia ready to use Nord Stream 2 string for gas supplies to Europe. According to the Russia, uh, to, uh, Russian leader uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia does not limit anyone, including readiness to supply extra volumes during the winter season. In a way, Mark, is he trolling the EU? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's certainly <laughs> my, my first reaction, that it is a bit of, of trolling. And on, on the surface, that might be what it sounds like, because, of course, the uh, Germany, the EU had denied uh, ever even opening Nord Stream 2. And uh, that was before, of course, uh, Nord Stream 1 and the other leg of Nord Stream 2 were recently destroyed um but um there i think there is also a, a degree of sincerity here um that the uh, way back to a stable reliable relatively cheap supply of energy that uh even the eu uh, chief Burrell has acknowledged what is is what is responsible for decades of EU prosperity, that that is still a possibility, that there is still a way back if the EU steps back from the brink, that the US uh, or whoever else is responsible, the US, um, has <laughs> not completely physically severed every remaining. And this this pipeline alone is capable of supplying 8% of, of gas imports to Europe, right? It is it, – even this one leg is not insignificant. So um, as much as there's a bit of, of, of trolling there on the surface, I, th I think Putin is actually genuinely sincere, uh, however much I am, am quite sure that he will not be taken up on this and that the European elite would rather see their industries shut down and their people freeze uh, uh, rather than, than um, take gas from Russia. So doesn't this really show the level of chess that Putin – has been playing for a very long time because I can only imagine that as the people in the street are freezing and they, and they say, you know, there is gas available. O Olaf Schultz just won't allow us to get it. Joe Biden just won't allow us to get it, that there's going to be an uncontrollable uh, protest, anger, ire, the pitchforks and torches and, uh, well, they won't have torches. But anyway, 
Your thoughts? Mark Certainly not gas power torches. Not, <laughs> not gas power torches. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that this pipeline could at any moment for the moment anyway, until someone destroys this one, too, um, could be turned on might add a degree of of political anxiety uh, to to, you know, what is doubtless going to be increasing levels of uh, domestic unrest, uh, not just in Germany, but throughout the EU. Uh, that will be an ever-present reminder that there still is uh, yet a, a possible path out. And also, Mark, makes it a little harder on those Swedish investigators who are like, they're going to investigate and find out who did it, and it's going to be, the Russians blew it up, and the Russians are like, yeah, we're offering you gas right now. You know, it's it makes it a little uh, it makes the whole thing a little stranger. And it's kind of like that old torture where there's a person who's thirsty and they set a glass of water just out of their reach and allow them to die of thirst. Although I guess in this particular scenario, you could argue that the U.S. is the one who's actually the torturer. What will have the greater impact, Mark? Industry shutting down and the and the pressure of the uh, industrialists on the government or people freezing in the street. Yeah. The, the two are not unrelated of right. course. Uh, but I believe that by and large that the EU will cobble together enough gas. I mean, the, the levels that are in their, their storage tanks and the supplies, you know, that they'll be able to get from other sources. I think it's enough that they will be able to, by and large, keep their their people from freezing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a few excess deaths, but but by and large, but there will not be the gas uh, to also supply their industry. And however bad it is this year, it will be much worse for next year because then there will not be the gas supply ready to fill those storage tanks next year that they have been doing for several months now, up until now, uh, you know, to prepare for this winter. So as, as, as dark as this winter will be for uh, German industry, uh, the German people could feel the frostbite much more significantly as well next year. And let's not forget about the spring. You know what I mean, Mark? I mean, okay, you scramble through the winter. You use down to your last bit of it, and you just at spring hits, and you're like, whew, we made it through the winter, and now we're completely out of gas, and it's spring. And things are starting to move, and people want to go back to work, and they expect to be driving, and all the things they expect to be doing— they don't. I, I don't think they have to wait for next winter for catastrophe free. I think in the event that they make it through the winter, by make it, I mean just everybody doesn't end up with their toes and hand, fingers and toes falling off from frostbite. But let's just say they somehow make it. When spring comes, they're in the same boat, Mark. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously the uh, the gas requirements are lesser uh, during the uh, spring, summer uh, months. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, winter is coming and uh, all the predictions uh, of meteorologists is that it will be a significant one and the cold could extend well into the spring. 
um, and the spring will bring no respite because already they will be looking at the requirements uh, for the next cold season while trying to you know still have enough gas to to one what rem- will remain of their industry uh, over uh, the months uh, up until you know the, the the great cold begins again. Biden says he has no intention of meeting with Putin about Ukraine. He said this to Jake Tapper on CNN, and there have been a number of pieces written and a number of folks have said that no matter how intense these conflicts become, they always end based upon negotiation. And so for Joe Biden to say this, uh, particularly when I think they're scheduled to be at the same forum in the next couple of weeks, for as tough as Joe Biden might think it makes him look, it really makes him look foolish. Um, Dr. Leon, I, I have to tell you that everyone in Russia was glued to their television sets for the word. <laughs> everyone. Man, woman, My word? and child was breathlessly waiting. For me? Will Joe Biden meet oh. with Putin? <laughs> Will he do it? And then their hopes were crushed. No, actually, no one cared. Um, <laughs> no, no one was expecting uh, anything of the sort from from the U.S. president. At, oh, I understand. No, I, I, I understand. Yeah, I understand that. It's just to yeah. me, it's just a foolish, yeah. foolish decision. Well, I mean, we've we've made so many foolish decisions uh, up until this point, and there's still some Ukrainians left alive that can be conscripted and some U.S. weapons shoved in their hands and thrown out onto the battlefield. And we all know that Joe Biden will fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. So I have no reason to believe that he would uh, uh, return uh, to negotiations over uh, the fate of, of what has become uh, a U.S. client state uh, in uh, Ukraine since the uh, U.S. backed putsch there in 2014, um, and uh, I have no doubt at all that uh, whether it's Joe Biden or another U.S. president, say Coke instead of Pepsi or Pepsi instead of Coke, that uh, they will not engage in significant negotiations uh, over Ukraine. As far as they're concerned, they've geopolitically flipped it in 2014, and they will see it burn to the ground uh, before they make any concessions to Russia. I I did want to ask you about this. Um, This is trending on Twitter. Emmanuel Macron tweeted, we do not want a world war. When When I read that, the first thing I thought is, there's pressure coming. And, you know, you see Trump's now saying something. Elon Musk is now saying it. Former uh, G- General, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Admiral A- uh, Mullen, the former uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There must be people saying to Emmanuel Macron, dude, you guys got to turn this, turn the volume down. This is getting ugly. We do not want a world war tweet by Emmanuel Macron. Your thoughts, Mark? I just wonder then why he's doing everything possible <laughs> to create one. I, My exact I, tweet. I, I, I'm, I'm floored be at, at the disconnect between his stated goals and his actions because they are going in opposite directions. 
You know, it's like sitting at a bar and saying, bartender, uh, give me a triple vodka. What? Why? I'm trying to get sober to drive home. It, it, it may. <laughs> he, this was said as France promised um, air defense uh, to to the Kiev regime. So it, it he may say that, but his actions are doing everything to guarantee the opposite. So I must doubt the sincerity of his words. Politico has a piece, NATO sets sights on rebuilding Ukraine's defense industry. They're developing a 10-year plan to rebuild the Ukrainian defense industry with the first meeting between the alliance and Kiev slated for next week. This really sounds to me like the Lockheed Martin and and Boeing and 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 Raytheon are are at the table saying, "Ah, new markets for us to sell our goods." Well, I mean, first of all, it's no doubt that they sense the potential because the Kiev regime's substantial uh, Soviet legacy weapons have all been destroyed. I mean, there, there's really not much left. That's why they are quite honest. We are completely reliant on Western weapons. And it is very unlikely, of course, that that, that, that regime would get weapons from Russia, whom uh, is, they are engaged in a conflict with, um, uh, you know, uh, that follows on their conflict with their own Eastern people for the last eight years. Uh, so, I mean, they're going to need something from somewhere, you would presume. But, um, I mean, the conflict is not over, and Russia has already destroyed uh, Ukraine's uh, industrial defense capacity to an extremely substantial degree. That was one of the primary targets. Uh, over the last seven months is the demilitarization that meant not just existing military equipment uh, uh, actually far more substantially even it meant the capacity to produce more but I applaud the Pentagon and the US military industrial complex for their optimism for 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 uh, for looking to a sunny future where there is a regime in Kiev <laughs> that they can sell weapons to um i don't see that in the future as being such a uh certainty as they seem to think but hat, hats off to them for their optimism because i i'm i'm not an optimist myself and someone who is able to look in the opposite direction of the trending of current events as Kiev is bombed nightly and say, I smell profits. We can sell weapons there in the future. Um, you know, wow. Uh, <laughs> optimists. That's all I can say. <laughs> Mark Slavota is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. 
Thank you, Garland. Taiwan claims that it's ready to attack Chinese aircraft. Also, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has traveled to China in apparent pushback against Washington's anti-China stance. Joining us now to discuss this, we've got KJ No. KJ is a peace activist and a writer, a teacher, and a friend of the show. KJ, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. And Global Times, we read, addressing the 13th German Mechanical Engineering Summit held in Berlin on Tuesday, Chancellor Schultz reiterated the importance of globalization and opposed decoupling from countries including China. Chinese state broadcaster CGTN reported on Wednesday. Well, we're starting to finally get a little bit of pushback against the U.S. empire by uh, the German chancellor. Your thoughts, KJ? Yes. Well, I mean, in some sense, they're just being pragmatists. They cannot not push back against this. I mean, the fact of decoupling with China would mean that Germany is essentially condemning its industry and its economy to, you know, to a moribund and, uh, you know, decrepit state. So they have to. They have to push back. Now, uh, we know that the the economic commissioner has pushed back on this. We know that Schultz himself has pushed back on this. They said that is is not an option. Decoupling is not an option. But we'll see, you know, how far this gets. I'm sure that the U.S. will bring out all its guns and try to twist their arms and push them back down. Uh, but this is a promising first step. An engulfing energy crisis and recession woes confronting Europe, which has mired itself in sanctions against Russia, have prompted calls for a return to pragmatism when it comes to its China strategy. I interpret that to say your policy is backfiring and now you got to find other options. Yes, absolutely. It is backfiring and it's backfiring in tremendous ways. I mean, in some sense, uh, according to Michael Hudson, you know, this is part of the strategy is to also take down Europe and Germany is the beating heart of the European economy. So over the long term, uh, this is part of the strategy to uh, depotentiate, to weaken Europe. Uh, but for right now, they do need a functioning Europe in order to have a manufacturing sector, in order to have an economic sector that is capable of uh, continuing to assist the U.S. in its proxy war against the Ukraine. Well, and here we have the contradiction for the EU. You know, the U.S. wants to take out Russia and China, and they want to use basically the EU as a suicide bomber. And they want to basically say, we want you to, you know, they buy things from you. They do business. Here's what here's the plan. You blow yourself up, wipe out your economy, destroy your continent, and then they'll go down along with you and we'll sit here and reap the rewards. And, and, and it's preposterous and everybody can see it. You have to believe that the European leaders see that and are concerned but feel powerless to, to stop to stop themselves. I think it varies. I think there's some of them are so deeply ideological and Atlanticist. They know that, you know, blowing up one economy doesn't really hurt them that much because they still, you know, function in the transnational elite. And, you know, they're not the ones who will be taking cold showers or coming home to cold houses. But uh, by and large, the vast majority of workers, the vast majority of people uh, in the EU are deeply and fundamentally opposed to this. And we'll see if that translates into uh, change of governments and whether those change of governments 
will actually result in change of policy. There are a few steps involved here, but certainly the resistance is profound on the ground. And I think that goes to Michael Hudson's point about, for example, these German industrialists aren't necessarily German nationalists. They'll make their money anywhere their money can be made. So they're not as tied to Europe or as tied to Germany. They're tied to finance. Uh, Absolutely. They're tied to finance and they're tied to wherever the economic interests are most most capably served. Now, there is a possibility that Germany could start to move out its industrial plant to Russia, in which case that would be, you know, blowback on a level which the U.S. had not anticipated. They're hoping that, you know, there'll be this kind of reshoring or offshoring towards the United States. But the U.S. doesn't have uh, the manpower or the educated industrial capacity to do that. And so I think there are many ways in which this can blow back. Well, the other part of it is this. The manufacturing costs have to be reasonable in a manner that uh, allows you to be competitive because if China's making widgets and the U.S. is making widgets and you're making widgets in the U.S., the people in the U.S. don't have health care coverage, so they need more money. Their housing is more expensive. Their uh, college for kids, everything is so much more expensive that the amount of money they have to pay the American worker just to survive as compared to to the things that are available to the Chinese worker that they don't have to pay for or pay as much puts puts them in a position where they won't be able to manufacture things. The labor costs will price them out of the market. I think that's what I'm saying. Well, and that's why they deindustrialized the United States in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, that's the first, uh, you know, that's the first thing that happened. I mean, this is what capital does. You know, it will go wherever labor is cheapest uh, in specifically the use of China. Uh, we know that they were able to uh, take advantage of China's cheap labor because it was a developing country. In the case of Europe, they were able to take advantage of Russia's cheap energy, uh, which is also a, a form of you know, uh, thermodynamic labor. And so they were able to get ahead on that. But both of those things are going away. If the U.S. decouples from China, that cheap labor force goes away. If they are decoupling from Russia, uh, that cheap energy source goes away. And then, you know, what is the result? I think that I think, you know, it's, it's pretty clear to see that we uh, deindustrialization and economic ruin is in the cards unless there is 180 percent about face. Biden is now all in on taking out China, the U.S. president has committed to rapid decoupling, whatever the consequences. This is from foreignpolicy.com. Is he really, really that far off his rocker, KJ? Well, it looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, this is kind of an extraordinary (laughs) uh, action because uh, essentially they're saying that they're going to give all of China the Huawei treatment. The Huawei, you know, was the... Uh, telecom company that the U.S. has essentially uh, tried to destroy by sanctioning it to death, as if it were Cuba or North Korea. Uh, Huawei survived and is still thriving, uh, but uh, the U.S. wants to give the Huawei treatment to all of China. And it's uh, essentially saying that there are almost no limits on the sanctions regarding 
semiconductors, chip making equipment, uh, design equipment, and supercomputer components. The idea is that they're going to fundamentally damage China's technological advance, which is another way of saying that they're fundamentally committed to ruining China's economic development. That is a declaration of war. The U.S. has given multiple assurances that it is not that it is not planning to, uh, you know, prevent China's uh, economic development, prevent China's rise. But this, uh, you know, gives the light to that. It's exactly uh, what, uh, you know, what they say they are not doing. And of course, the blowback to this is extraordinary because it will destroy not simply. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, semiconductor industry, but also, uh, you know, the global semiconductor industry. Well, what's interesting is the article where it says Biden is now all in on taking out China. And afterwards, the next sentence, the U.S. president has committed to rapid decoupling Whatever the consequences, well, one of the things that we've seen with this so-called decoupling the the, uh, EU from Russia is that the consequences for its allies are complete and total economic destruction. However, I believe that what we're seeing with Olaf Scholz and what we will see over the winter as the people in the EU just completely go berserk in all likelihood, tear that place apart brick by brick, that while Joe Biden may not care about the consequences, there are people around the world who would prefer to eat and take a warm bath than go along with his ideological mission. KJ. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. First, this is a a program that won't work because, you know, China will continue continue to develop and grow. uh, And Also, it will create tremendous blowback in the EU and also eventually all over the world. And that will, you know, I mean, it's a policy that cannot uh, function. It's a policy that cannot work. But it really is, I think, an act of desperation. Uh, It is, you know, essentially a political Valsalva maneuver, you know, kind of like uh, like. uh, straining to get something out and not being aware that there's tremendous risk and tremendous blowback involved. Taiwan clarifies first strike definition. Taipei is prepared to go to war in response to air incursions from Beijing, according to Taipei's defense chief. Again, seeing that China, to my knowledge, isn't interested in invading Taiwan. What does all of this mean? It's more a threat inflation. You know, as the Chinese say, the dog barks, but the caravan continues on its way. Uh, It's more yakking. It's more uh, aggression. It's more threats. Uh, What they're saying is that if China uh, so much as dares to fly a plane in its airspace, and it's unclear whether they mean ATIC or airspace or, or even a drone, that they will shoot it down and that this could be the start of a war. Essentially, they're saying, bring it on, we're ready for you. Very, very foolish bravado. I mean, the first thing to point out is actually, uh, uh, you know, the uh, ROC military is very restricted in its capacity to shoot down uh, such, uh, you know, uh, uh, vehicles. And secondly, it's extraordinarily foolhardy, but perhaps 
this is the escalation they want. This is doing the plan, which is to escalate against China and to provoke war. Uh, we'll see how that works out. You know, the Chinese don't want war. They want uh, peaceful reunification. But this is more belligerence and posturing uh, from the part of the ROC military. This reminds me of the Mike Tyson statement, everybody can fight until they get punched in the face. Exactly. And I, and I think it also uh, shows us that the U.S., which is behind, you know, these statements are all the U.S. push statements, propaganda, that they desire to turn Taiwan into Ukraine, that it's the exact op. Now we want to draw China into a fight with you with, with Taiwan. And then we can say, that's it. We've got to decouple now and everybody's got to the entire world's got to join us on a crusade against them, blah, blah, blah. KJ, I kind of think China's hip to that. I think they are. I think they're completely hip to that. Uh, they don't want to get pulled into that. They're, you know, they're capable of taking the island if they want to, certainly blockading it. And within 14 days, Taiwan would fall because, you know, just simply, simply doesn't have the supplies, especially the fuel supplies to sustain itself. But it is staying back, keeping its balance, not being pulled off uh, its course. Uh, and this is more distraction, more, uh, you know, uh, more, you know, uh, threat inflation. And I think the Chinese strategy is we will not get in your way while you create trouble for yourself. K.J. Noah is a peace activist, writer, and a teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Here's my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Scott Ritter argues that many people are serving life sentences in jail, having been convicted on far weaker grounds than the circumstantial evidence pointing to Washington for the Nord Stream pipeline attack. Also, President Putin points to the U.S. as benefiting from the pipeline attack. Joining us now to discuss this, we have the author of that fine consortiumnews.com article. It's Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, thanks for having me. Intent, motive, and means. People serving life sentences in U.S. prisons have been convicted on weaker grounds than the circumstantial evidence against Washington for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. You can find the art article, Scott Ritter, Pipelines versus USA, consortiumnews.com. Scott Ritter, what say you? Well, I mean, let's just start off with straight up intent. I mean, that's one of the most difficult things to prove is criminal intent. Um, but when you have the president of the United States, Joe Biden, publicly saying on February 7th of this year that if Russian tanks cross into Ukraine, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will end, will go away. And when asked, that's German, how would you do that? He said, trust me, it'll end. Um, and that's a confession beforehand, <laughs> literally. Um, you could convict on that alone. But then, you know, you might want to ask some other questions. Uh, you know, the old uh, legal concept of qui bono, uh, who benefits? Generally speaking, uh, in criminal law, 
uh, you, you look for the person who benefits from the crime, and that most more than likely is your suspect. Enter Anthony Blinken, Secretary <laughs> of State, United States of America, uh, gives a presentation. After the destruction of a major uh, piece of energy infrastructure for uh, a, a European continent that the United States calls friend, many of whom are allies, united against Russia, he, he doesn't say, my God, I'm sorry this happened. This is terrible. Uh, we will find the perpetrators of this horrific, heinous attack. He says, hey, this is a great opportunity. And what opportunity is he talking about? Not just to liberate Europe from Russian gas, but for American sellers of liquid natural gas to step into the breach and sell this gas and make horrendous profits already the you know, the, the cost of American LNG to Europe is 10 times what it was before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we clearly have motive. And then the means, you know, in June, there was a, a naval exercise uh, conducted by the United States Navy together with uh, their NATO uh, allies in the vicinity of a uh, Bornholm Island. That's a Danish island in the Baltic Sea. Um, what's interesting about Bornholm is the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines uh, run right by it. Uh, and this exercise was right over the area where these pipelines are. What was the U.S. Navy testing? Unmanned underwater vehicles, uh, whose job is to get low to the bottom and look for mines and then destroy these mines using these UUVs uh, that would be guided in. They have explosives on them and they blow the mine up. Now, what's important about this, one of the UUVs that's used by the United States Navy is called the Sea Fox. We've used the Sea Fox extensively in the Persian Gulf to destroy moored Iranian uh, sea mines. We send it in, we blow them up. Um, in 2015, a Sea Fox UUV was found <laughs> underneath the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. There Now, the NATO said, oh, we lost it. We lost it. But no, uh, who knows? Uh, but the murder weapon has been found at the scene of the crime beforehand. Uh, suddenly, we have the pipeline blowing up right where the U.S. Navy was, right where the Sea Fox was, right where they trained with the Sea Fox. This is sort of like the means of the, the crime. Now, Sweden went in to investigate, um, and they found debris. They have recovered evidence, but they're not talking about it except a very um, cryptic comment made by a Swedish investigator. Um, we'd like to talk to the United States. We think they have something that could you know, be of interest about this. I, I think <laughs> if I take that package right there, go to a jury, I will get 12 out of 12 to say the United States did it. The United States did do it. And it's not shocking that we did this. We understand America is capable of shocking things. What's shocking is that Europe knows the United States did it. Germany knows the United States did it. Sweden knows. Denmark knows. Everybody knows. But nobody's calling America out on this. America literally went in and destroyed a major piece of European energy infrastructure that, because of its destruction, condemns much of Europe, including Germany, to third nation status their economies are tanking their people will suffer and the victims knowing who the perpetrator of the crime is opt to remain silent you reference in your piece a column published by the german newspaper uh die welt 
or DeWelt, in July of 2019, and it was entitled, Europe Must Retain Control of Its Energy Security, and it made the argument that the Nord Stream 2 will drastically increase Russia's energy leverage over the EU. What's interesting to me is the United States has now dealt the death blow to Europe's ability to get energy at reasonable prices by blowing up the pipeline. So it's not Russia that used the leverage. It's the United States that wound up using the leverage. Yeah, the only one who uses energy as a weapon is the United States. We sanction Russian energy. Uh, we blowing up pipelines. Uh, the, there was an attempted act of sabotage against the Church Stream pipeline, which has now become a very critical piece of energy infrastructure. Um, I wonder who was behind that. The, uh, but, you know, we're the ones who weaponize energy. Uh, we're the ones using this uh, situation right now not only to is the, the height of hubris and arrogance. We're allowing the price of American liquid natural gas to go through the roof. We're making unbelievable profits. We, we, have, we have basically upended the definition of windfall profits. Uh, you, you can't even call what we're getting from this windfall. It's beyond that. At the same time, we seek to put caps on what Russia can charge for its energy. So we've tightened the global energy market. So the energy prices rise. We seek to unilaterally profit from it, but we will seek to deny Russia the ability to profit from it. Here's the, where it's going to backfire. Russia's not playing that game. Anybody who seeks to put a cap on it won't get Russian energy, which only will starve them out further and increase the prices further. Um, the, the, the United States apparently is populated by people who know nothing about global energy security, global energy uh, economics. Uh, instead, we're populated by some narcissistic idiots that look in the mirror and think that because the person looking back at them is a senior American official, they are God and whatever they want will happen. It doesn't work that way. It's also going to have blowback on American energy prices. I was hearing this morning that people are going to be paying 25 to 35 percent more to heat their homes this coming winter, and they're projecting a, a colder winter than usual. Go ahead, Garland. RT, Russia releases map of missile strikes against Ukraine. Uh, Russia's state Duma speaker uh, has shared a map revealing the scale of Russian missile strikes. If the terrorist attacks continue, the, wa- the response will be even harsher, he warned. Your thoughts on, um, on that, um, Scott? There's an old uh, saying, uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Russia had warned the Ukrainians not to touch the bridge over and over again. Ukraine touched the bridge, and now they're paying the consequences. Um, this was the impetus needed to push Russia out of the velvet-gloved approach that it had been taking uh, with the special military operation for the past eight months. The gloves are off, uh, and Russia's hitting Ukraine where it hurts uh, in a way that many people thought they should have done from the very beginning. Um, you know, Ukraine is suffering right now. Just listen to the panic in the voice of Zelensky, of uh, Arestovich and the other advisors. Uh, they don't know which way is up. Um, they're desperately trying to get Europe to step in to save them, but there's nothing Europe can do. There was an emergency meeting yesterday in NATO to provide advanced air defense systems. 
how do you get these air defense systems into Ukraine uh, deployed and, and made operational uh, while Ukraine's at war? Who's going to operate these systems? These systems cannot be integrated with Ukraine's existing air defense network. Um, I, you know, NATO sometimes, it, they, they appear to be like doctors writing prescriptions uh, to, to cure a disease, uh, but they're writing prescriptions for something that isn't even going to begin to touch the disease. Bringing in this air defense package is not going to help Ukraine. It's just a waste of money. It's done for political benefit. Um, many of the uh, NATO nations that are tasked with providing these are saying, we don't have them. <laughs> we, we don't have anything to give. <laughs> so, you know, this, this is just, again, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Ukraine is winning the stupidest prize of them all. And that's the destruction of their nation. When I read this uh, story and then heard some discussion on it on, on some other, other channels, it made me think about what you were saying, Scott. I think you were saying a, a long time ago about Russia's strategy as it relates to its missile arsenal and that it prefers to use missiles than people. And so this is really just Russia using its its standard modus operandi. No, absolutely. And, and the other thing is Russia ain't going to run out of missiles. I mean, that's the thing that people don't understand is because this is, you know, it, it, their modus operandi, it means that they have prepared for this. Russia was prepared to fight a full-on war with NATO. NATO has never been prepared since the end of the Cold War to fight a full-on war with Russia. That's why NATO is running out of artillery, running out of artillery pieces, running out of everything. Russia, on the other hand, took it seriously when NATO started expanding, which means they have built an arsenal that is capable of fighting a lengthy, sustained war against NATO. Ukraine, while a NATO proxy, is not NATO. Russia is only using a fraction of the missiles that it has allocated for wartime use. Uh, and while they're using them, they have their defense industry up building even more. So uh, anybody who thinks that Russia is going to run out of missiles before Ukraine runs out of targets, um, think again. You know, here's something interesting I want to throw at you. Just recently, seven hours ago, Emmanuel Macron tweeted, we do not want a world war. We are helping Ukraine to resist its soil, never to attack Russia. When I'm looking at what's going on, we're hearing Admiral Mullen come out, Elon Musk come out, Donald Trump come out. It seems like they're, they're starting to get some pressure on these leaders from people who are concerned about a nuclear confrontation. Scott. Look, when Jan Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, who should never, ever again be allowed to speak in public, uh, came out and the other day and said, a Russian victory in Ukraine is a NATO defeat, all but admitting that NATO considers itself to be at war with Russia, um, and then turns around and says, because of this, we must exercise our nuclear potential in an exercise schedule for next week, after the Ukrainian president has begged NATO to launch a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia, the optics alone are just, you know, mind-boggling. Um, and there's been too many people throwing out nuclear references, from the President of the United States with his oft-repeated Armageddon talk, uh, to Zelensky begging for nuclear preemption, to other European officials talking about it, to Stoltenberg. And I think there are finally some adults uh, going, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
we are getting way too close. We're raising the temperature far too high. We need to ratchet this thing down and ratchet it now. So this is why we're getting these statements. Uh, we, they don't want to go to war. No one wants a nuclear conflict. They're trying to get the rhetoric under control because when you, if you let the rhetoric go crazy, um, emotions run high and accidents can happen. So I think what we're seeing right now is a growing revelation on the part of Western leaders that, A, Ukraine has lost this war. I mean, you hear the desperation in Zelensky's voice. You hear the panic in everybody's voice who's talking. And B, NATO needs to be very careful how they decide to lose this conflict because they're going to lose this conflict. Do they want to lose in the way that the results in a global ending thermonuclear war? Or they want to lose this in a way that NATO still survives, Europe survives, the world survives, and it's only Ukraine that pays the price. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector in an Iraq and an, in Iraq and an author. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon here with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Michael Hudson has an interesting article in which he outlines the geopolitical pathway away from the neoliberal order. He argues that the pathway is fraught with peril, but the rewards are promising. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. Dr. Tawheed is an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. And as I said, Michael Hudson starts with the geoeconomic pathway away from the neoliberal order is fraught with peril, but the rewards in establishing an alternative system are as promising as they are urgent. Your thoughts, Dr. Tawheed? Yes, this is indeed an interesting article, and uh, Michael Hudson has been writing on parts of this for, for a long time, and I think as time goes on, particularly with the um, the situation in Europe, with the with the, the sanctions and the other crises that we're having, I think his article, his observations are becoming more and more important to 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 um, to think about. He says the Chinese, whom I've talked to for years and years, did not expect the dollar to weaken. They're not crying about its rise but they are concerned about flight capital from China, as I think after the party Congress, there will be a crackdown on the Shanghai free market advocacy. Why, why, is, that, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because, uh, of course, the, the Chinese for, for the last 30 years have been uh, very much involved in Western production. They've been the, um, the low-cost uh, production engine uh, for, for, for the West. And so they have uh, tied their their economy, the growth of their economy, uh, essentially to the West, uh, as, as they were moving away from communism into um, a more free market. They, they they certainly haven't gone all the way, but uh, but um, there are apparently those who want to go further in that direction, and uh, they're seeing now going further in that direction would would be a bad thing, and so they are reassessing uh, their their trade relationships. 
What I think is interesting is if I look at, you know, I always like to ask the opposite question where Dr. Hudson says that, you know, this the, the new pathway away from the neoliberal order is fraught with peril, particularly for the golden, for the, excuse me, for the global south. And one may argue the way um, the EU is, is looking right now economically, probably for them too, not establishing an alternative order uh, uh, system is fraught with peril. For the global south, it seems to me the U.S. empire is really uh, frightened, angry, and cracking the whip, and failure to establish something alternative is going to put people in a situation where they're kind of slaves like the EU, who may be at any time asked or forced into doing things that that, um, puts their own civilians uh, in harm's way. Yeah, I, but I think I, I think there is, a, you know, the peril. I think perhaps the peril that that Hudson is talking about is perhaps military peril. Uh, you know, uh, trade uh, is it can be war by by other means, but the other means are still available to the West. So if you have, uh, you know, global South uh, countries, Latin America, Africa, uh, South Asia, who are moving to move away from uh, being under the uh, U.S. hegemony. Uh, the U.S. has tradition has been to to send the military in to engage in a coup, which which ends up um, you know uh, in in lots of destruction. That's that's I think the peril. The other side of it, of course, is is uh, if they continue on uh, with that the relationships that they've had with the U.S., then then they're in economic peril as well. So yeah, getting away from the economic peril is going to require them to do some things that might put them in some danger. For a while, they're they're going to have to create some relationships that uh, would would stave that off, um, and so yeah. They talk about the adoption of a common currency. Michael Hudson says any idea of a common currency has to start with a currency swap arrangement among existing member countries. I- explain how that would work, and that really seems to to, to me. That seems to be a very sensible way for the countries that are involved to get themselves off the dollar, strengthen their 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 currencies, and rearrange the balance of power. Yeah, one way that uh, you know uh, economies can trade different with with different currencies is to decide that they're going to use one currency as the standard. And then everyone has to get that currency in order to trade. That's what's been happening, of course, with the dollar. It's not necessarily been been by uh, volunteering of of these other countries, but but the dollar has become the de facto currency. That means everyone has to get dollars. They have to buy things. Uh, excuse me. They have to sell things to the U.S. in order to get dollars, in order then to buy things from the U.S. If you do a currency swap, then no one has to get anyone else's currency. So, for example, uh, um, a um, uh, Russia is is engaging in trade with India with a currency swap. So the the Indians can can pay for Russian goods with rupees, and the Russians can pay for Indian goods in rubles, and then they can turn those rubles and rupees around uh, to buy things from the other country. But no one currency becomes the dominant go-to currency, which makes each currency as strong as they can get, depending on what what that country is able to produce. Uh, When the U.S. dollar is the major currency, it becomes a major currency, even though uh, U.S. productive capability may be be declining. Let me ask you this. 
recently, I believe it was, U- uh, I, I think it's Uganda, found this gigantic gold mine where they're estimating like $12 trillion worth of gold, an unbelievable amount, the, uh, which Uganda is very, very close to the, Ru- to the, to the Russians. The BRICS country, the BRICS and SCO, all of these countries, the discussion is a gold-backed or at minimum commodity-backed um, currency of some time. Now, when the uh, British currency, you know, pound, you know, was the world, the world reserve, and it took about 30, 35 years for that to really, you know, kind of fall out of favor. And people are saying that's how long it takes. But if you have a new currency that is backed by commodities, perhaps Ugandan gold, that has specifically that plan, couldn't it happen a lot faster? Well, the, the problem with a currency, and we'll say this based on something like gold, is that gold is, uh, one, limited. Now, there's this vast new array, but, but it's in Uganda. It's not anywhere else. So everyone uh, would be at a disadvantage relative to Ugandans holding that gold uh, if that, if that uh, gold strike was in Russia or China or the U.S., then other countries would still be at disadvantage. Having a currency that's based on your productive capability to produce goods and services, not gold, but produce goods and services, uh, means that a country is in more control of its relationship with other countries because it doesn't have to get gold in order to trade. It could make things and 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 use that as as as, as trade. That is, uh, the the wealth of a nation will depend on what it's able to produce, not what it finds underneath its its, its territory. Now, gold in in you know is a commodity. It's used in manufacture of of computers and other kind of things. For that use, gold is good. But as a as a currency, uh, it, uh, it it has a problem of being limited, uh, which creates an artificial scarcity for it. There's a discussion in this article about German industrialists contemplating the coming wasteland Germany. And uh, Michael Hudson says it is unlikely that German industrialists will act to prevent their country's deindustrialization, given the U.S. NATO stranglehold on the Eurozone politics and the past 75 years of meddling by the U.S. Can you explain that? Well, I think I think the thing that to, to 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 clarify that is to understand that industrialists, German, U.S., British, they are really not tied to their countries. It's a mistake to continue. They're, to they're not nationalists. Yeah, they're national. They're internationals. Right. They don't care where they make their money. Uh, so if they, you know, if, if uh, German companies can move somewhere else and they can still uh, build their wealth, they don't really care. The, the, the problem is, of course, that the German people need to care. <laughs> and so the, the, uh, the, what, if the German industrialists are not likely to resist this opportunity to, to become richer by moving their industries to the U.S., but the German people uh, have to become concerned that that will impoverish them. And that's where the pushback is going to come if there's going to be pushback. It's not going to be from German industrialists. One of the things I think that's interesting in this article is he talks about, you know, people buying things in their own current, selling things in their own currency. And he makes a good point. If you've got, if your currency is rubles or rupees or whatever, you really don't need more of those. You can print more. You know, you don't need more of your own currency. And that is something that a lot of people are confused about. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, Hudson was using that to explain why, you know, uh, uh, Putin demanded uh, payment for gas, Russian gas, in, in rubles, 
It's not because the Russians need rubles. They can create as many rubles as they want. But by creating a demand for rubles among those who were wanting to buy gas, it actually increases the value of the ruble, which makes the ruble go further in buying things from other places. So that was a move by the Russians to uh, increase the value of the ruble. It wasn't because they needed rubles. He also talks about sanctions and the fact that U.S. sanctions have really, he doesn't say this, but backfired, and that what they've done is forced other countries to engage with each other in order to circumvent the sanction process. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and that goes back to the you know the Russians demanding payment in rubles. That that was a backfire. That was a a, a, a quite a move. That pretty I'm sure unexpected by the West that that uh, Putin would go to that and therefore increase the value of the ruble instead of devaluing the ruble and and moving Russia into uh, a great recession. Uh, Russia uh, under Putin uh, has for the last twenty years become a producer of its own food, clothing, and shelter. That is, it, it has the raw materials and the labor force to be able to produce what it needs. So it really doesn't need to buy very much from from elsewhere. And uh, that wasn't counted on when the sanctions were were put in place. It was it was thought that the Russians needed dollars in order to buy things from somewhere else, and they can produce uh, McDonald's, uh, you know, Big Macs just as well as anywhere else, and they have the raw materials to do that. So, so that was a miscalculation in terms of the autonomy of the, of the Russian economy. And then uh, the Russians, of course, have been in uh, talks with uh, the, the Russian, I mean, with the Chinese and other uh, countries, members of the BRICS, for, for a long time in terms of creating trading relationships among them to get away from having to have trading relationships with the West uh, because they're, they're wanting to have relationships that are fairer instead of just free market, uh, where the West always wins. Yes, I think that um, we're looking at a, a circumstance where, in the end, it will be determined that the U.S. created the dynamic, created the environment where these other things had to happen. Uh, with about 30 seconds, Dr. Tawheed. Yeah, I, I think that's the inevitable uh, uh, movement for financial capitalism. When, when the financialists get into place, they're not caring where things are produced. Industrial capitalism does care where things are produced. But financial capitalism doesn't care. Well, then that, that means that, that uh, no nation is safe away from the vulture capitalists. And nations, therefore, have to take some way to protect themselves. And we're seeing that happen now. Dr. Linwood Tawheed is an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The calls in the U.S. Congress to punish the Saudis is growing louder. Also, the New York Times fired a Palestinian journalist simply for supporting the Palestine resistance. And Iraq still has no political solution for its parliamentary election issues. Joining us to discuss these issues and more, Laith Marouf. Laith's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thank you for having me once more. Well, almayadeen.net is now reporting Iraq. The president-elect assigns Mohammed al-Sudani to form a new government. What do we need to know, uh, Leith? They've been struggling over there in Iraq. Moqtada al-Sadr, he was in and then he was out. And now we seems like we, ha- we have a turn of events. Your thoughts? Oh, yes. So this is uh, a very quick turnaround. Uh, you know, just uh, yesterday, the parliament appointed a new president. And and he he isn't the president the current president so there was an election uh, with two names and it's uh, Abdul Latif Rashid became the new president of uh, Iraq and uh, today he appointed Al Sudani as the prime minister to form form a government Al Sudani was the uh, favorite of the. Uh, and the uh, the resistance bloc that includes the PMU, uh, some of your listeners may know, Al Sadr uh, objected to actually Al Sudani, and that led to all those demonstrations uh, taking over the parliament and blockading it. Yesterday, there was even uh, some katyoshes that fell on the green zone where the parliament is as the vote was happening for the president uh, to be appointed, and so. This is a huge development. It means that Iraq right now can move fast. The government can uh, solidify and even under these pressures of al-Sadr and other movements, objecting uh, democracy is uh, finally uh, speaking out. I think your last statement uh, probably is the answer to my question. And the question is, uh, where is the United States in all of this? Where does Abdul Latif Rashid fit into the American dynamic and influence in the country? And does the fact that he's Kurdish indicate anything? Well, I mean, the sectarian uh, constitution that the United States uh, put forward after the occupation stipulates that the president of Iraq has to be a Kurd. And the prime minister has to be Shia and the speaker of the house has to be a Sunni. So, of course, uh, what I would say in terms of the candidate right now that got to be the president, Latif Rashid, he is not the American candidate. Again, uh, the outgoing president of uh, Iraq, uh, a Kurdish uh, also member of the, the country, uh, was the favorite that the United States wanted. And it seems the resistance bloc was able to appoint both uh, the president and the prime minister in, in on favor of their side, which usually this is how democracy works. The parties with the hard, largest number of seats in parliament get to choose who's the president and the prime minister. And this is the first time that actually happens in Iraq since the occupation started in 2003. Prior to this, every prime minister and every president was a uh, kind of, um, you know, unity candidate that, uh, you know, everybody agreed on and wasn't uh, supported by a specific color in the parliament. Under these circumstances, if this goes forward, what kind of changes, you know, can we expect? What kind of position or ideological, whatever, a political, what kind of changes would you expect if this continue, if this is able to go all the way through to fruition? 
Well, the government has uh, a lot on its hand. Number one, they have to be able to bring electricity and services to the population as fast as possible because, of course, the United States and its uh, regional and, and local uh, tools will be working hard to make sure this government uh, doesn't achieve anything um, just like happened in Lebanon since the election of President Aoun four years ago. Uh, the crisis after crisis was manufactured by the United States in Lebanon to make sure that the president of uh, uh, Owen does not uh, come to any fruition. Luckily, Owen here is coming, leaving office with the uh, signed deal on the gas and the borders, maritime borders with uh, occupied Palestine. So I expect that the government in Iraq will move on those issues first, the local services issues, uh, to make the population feel a difference uh, in in governance, and and of course, of course, there is still hanging on the balance the the demand by the uh, parliament that the American military uh, leaves Iraq and ends its occupation. Uh, that I am sure the new government will not want to touch yet until it shows its population that it is. Um, delivering on their worries for their day-to-day -day life. RT reports calls for U.S. to punish Saudi Arabia grow. Lawmakers have suggested blocking arms sales. We've talked about this, but now U.S. Senator Blumenthal and uh, Congressman Kahana have accused Saudi Arabia of colluding with Russia by cutting OPEC oil production quotas. Your thoughts on this, Laith Marouf? Yeah, there was a very fast rebook that came out from the uh, Saudi government uh, within a few hours of this statement, uh, clearly saying that they will not take, quote unquote, dictates from uh, anyone in the West and the United States in regards to the interest of uh, Saudi Arabia or OPEC members. Uh, you see, it's clear that the Americans just now with their statement saying that they want to set the price of Russian oil at $60, that in reality means that they want to set the price of all oil in the world at $60. And the Saudis and the Russians and, of course, all the other OPEC members will refuse that because it means the market will be flooded with cheap oil and these governments will not be able to pay their national debts and or uh, the you know provide services for their citizens at, at this uh, price of 60 barrels uh, 60 dollars a barrel so i you know if the uh, americans actually sanction uh, saudi arabia and stop weapons sales this will be a boon for china and russia the saudis already indicated they wanted to buy the s400 just like turkey before them and were threatened uh, by sanctions by the united states and then if we, if you remember at that moment, uh, Trump arrived with uh, his entourage uh, years ago and, and got those billions of dollars in deals uh, for weapons from the Saudis. So if the, the United States shoots itself in the foot uh, and actually cuts military sales to Saudi Arabia, it will be a fortification of Asia, and maybe the Saudis finally will completely flip sides. Um, also, the uh, head of the UAE was recently in Moscow. 
you know, with what's going on right now, and you're seeing, you know, because the, these these Gulf state leaders seem to have made a decisive move to the east, shall we say? Your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, that that was a a very important visit um, because underneath it is an attempt by the United Arab Emirates to enter the fray of negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but there was a funny moment if people watch those videos of the president of the UAE, the, the prince, um, you know, coming out in the cold of Moscow and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Putin giving him his personal jacket <laughs> to keep him warm. So here we have clearly the like the symbolism of it is the you know emiratis are out in the cold with the americans angry at them and here is russia <laughs> keeping them warm uh with this uh, bear hug you know <laughs> so we are moving very fast I, I don't know where this is going to go and how safe it's going to be for these uh, states the saudi state and the emirati state because they have been client states of the United States vessels for you know 80 years, uh, and it's not going to be an easy exit from this relation, uh, especially with the mass infiltration in all the government uh, levels in the UAE and Saudi Arabia by uh, multiple Western uh, intelligence agencies. And 30 more Palestinian prisoners have joined a mass hunger strike inside Israelis' military prisons, calling for an end to imprisonment without charge. There seem to be new actions being taken every day, and this now just seems to be snowballing away from the settler colonial state of Israel. Oh, yeah. I mean, the media and the Zionist colony today unanimously, wall-to-wall, was saying that there is already an armed third intifada and that uh, the Zionist state has lost control of not only the West Bank, but also much of East Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there is now uh, a neighborhood in Jerusalem, uh, the Isawiya, that has been under siege uh, by the Zionist military for the fifth day in a row right now. Uh, 100,000 civilians that are blockaded, they can't go out and get food or, or water, and they're constantly being uh, sprayed with uh, sewer water and and a tear gas from the drones for you know, nonstop for four days now. And, uh, the, you know, this shows you how hard it is for the Zionists right now to... Um, you know, put down the Intifada in the West Bank and uh, Jerusalem. Uh, every day there is multiple uh, operations attacking uh, Israeli military forces. Yesterday, the Zionists attempted to uh, bring in uh, around 20 uh, settlers into the middle of Nablus city where there is the tomb of Joseph. Uh, and they were... Uh, you know, had to bring in uh, 30 military uh, jeeps to escort these settlers in to come in and, and do their, their uh, you know, rituals uh, in the middle of the city. And they were confronted very uh, aggressively by the residents of the city and they had to leave. Uh, so this is 
now a um, Nablus specifically and much of the Jerusalem and Janine are totally uh, liberated areas uh, that are resisting militarily and the and the, the Palestinian Authority uh, has lost control uh, of ability even to over its own security forces. Incidentally, this comes as as we speak right now, all the Palestinian uh, different factions are meeting in Algiers uh, under the uh, protection of the president of Algeria, who negotiated the a detente and a new page of collabor cooperation between all the Palestinian factions. They they just announced it an hour ago that there will be an election for a new president, a new prime minister, a new uh, legislator in Palestine where all the parties will be, uh, you know, joining the elections, and this will include uh, Jerusalem, and that there will be a new, um, uh, you know, negotiations on renewing the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, uh, which uh, represents the Palestinians uh, internationally and at the United Nations and is considered the uh, sole legitimate uh, representative of the Palestinian people, Hamas and Islamic Jihad may be able finally to have seats at the PLO, uh, and the PLO can be revived finally. We've been talking with Laith Maruth. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden has named China as the most consequential geopol geopolitical game changer. Also, President Putin has offered to restore gas flow to the EU through the Nord Stream pipeline complex. Will Germany cave? Joining us now to talk about this and more, we've got Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst, and he's the co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. And I don't mean cave in the pejorative sense, uh, uh, Ray. Two stories we got to put together. Number one, uh, according to President Putin, Russia is ready to use the Nord Stream 2 gas uh, pipeline that wasn't damaged for supplies to Europe. And Ray, well, what do you know? We've got an article. You can find it October 11th, 2022. Ray McGovern on Will the Germans Cave One More Time on Antiwar.com. Ray, your thoughts? This is really the question right now. Um, yesterday, uh, as you said, Putin himself said, look, we're all set to start gas supplies to Europe. Uh, we got a, a remaining string of Nord Stream 2 that we could use. Uh, the ball is in Berlin's court. <laughs> Never before since World War II have the Germans been faced, the German officials, I should say, been faced with such a dilemma. Uh, now, they can behave like lemmings uh, and simply obey U.S. diktat and not negotiate with the Russians and freeze to death and let their economy implode, or they can do what 
to most of us would seem to be the most sensible thing, and that is pursue these secret talks we know are already underway with Russia, figure out some way to uh, to get get rid of the uh, the sanctions that block the provision of gas to uh, to Berlin to not only Germany but the rest of Europe. Now. One would say, well, clearly, yeah, <laughs> clearly they're going to let their industry implode, and they're not going to let the people freeze this this winter. Uh, I like to believe that they will have to make that decision. However, it would be the first time, for God's sake, I have been shocked for twenty years at, at how German political leaders have always bent and played the lemming in front of Washington. So, you know, I'd like to be optimistic and say, well, the Germans will do the sensible thing. It'll be the first time. And it will be a really big event because it would split NATO right in half. The Germans are already very unpopular because they've done some stuff that, that makes the gas a little more accessible and a little cheaper to their own population. The hell with the rest of Europe. So we'll see how this plays out. But Putin has now laid down the gauntlet and said, look, <laughs> it's up to you, Germans. So we don't discriminate. We don't we don't hold grudges. We don't know who blew up that pipeline, but willing to do, but we're willing to deliver the gas. That's really big. And we touched on this a little earlier, but this to me shows the level of uh, 3D chess that uh, Vladimir Putin is playing. And it really seems as though he's leaving Joe Biden on the checkerboard. Uh, he is. Uh, and, you know, uh, just another, another word about the sanctions. Um, you know, the last big denouement uh, that I can remember from my knowledge of Russian history, of German history, and my, and my two tours of duty there uh, is 1933. Um, how did the Germans react? Well, you know, they they acted like, well, they succumbed. Uh, they didn't have what an what an animals is called the proper breeding. They fell apart. They acquiesced in Hitler's machinations, even though Hitler was in the minority. The Social Democrats, mind you, folded. And so there's some question as to whether there may be something in the German character that will not allow them to defy authority. And in this case, of course, the authority is Washington and Berlin following, following Lemon Lee. Uh, that's what I just like to add. Now, uh, Mugamer, I forget what your question was. Well, my point was that Putin saying we're now ready to provide gas service is showing the level or the depths of his three-dimensional chess that he's playing, and he's leaving Joe Biden on the checkerboard. You know, Biden really uh, doesn't know exactly what to do, uh, not for the first time. So he turns to his advisors, who in spades don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, Blinken and uh, Sullivan and those people can wave their fingers at the Germans, and the Germans are a little bit afraid, but not so much afraid anymore, given where that has gotten them. Uh, they can wave their fingers at China and at Russia. And right now, the realities are that they're laughed at. The only problem is 
that these elite fellows, uh, educated at the best universities, so to speak, uh, think that the U.S. is still exceptional. They, they really think that the U.S. is indispensable. And that means for other countries that, well, if, if, if the U.S. is indispensable, I guess that makes us dispensable. And people are beginning to realize that now. The vote in the U.N. General Assembly just yesterday, I guess it was, showed that not only is Russia not isolated, but the people who have abstained represent the vast majority of the people living in this world, China, India, and others uh, to be included there. You know, uh, moving with what when we was talking about the political um, implications of it, a couple of things. The investigation now, it's going to be much more difficult to, well, not that they won't do it, but Russia's saying, well, whoever did it missed one of the pipelines, so we're still willing to pump gas. Well, it makes it harder to say, yes, they blew up the old, uh, most of them, but they didn't realize they had another one, so they didn't blow that one up. Or, yes, they don't don't want to provide it, but they left. It makes it difficult for the propaganda that would come out of the investigation. And it, um, it, it also gives, still gives Russia some level of um, uh, leverage, something that they can uh, 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 negotiate with when Europe is in uh, very difficult straits, particularly Germany, but Europe overall is in difficult straits for gas over the course of the winter. Your thoughts on the political implications? Yes, of course. You know, well, who's investigating this now? Oh, it's Sweden, uh, Denmark, and oh, they're letting the Germans investigate it. <laughs> so I'd hate to be the German investigator, you know. Uh, I'm going to look at who did it, and it turns out to be, as Scott Ritter has pretty much proved, in my opinion, in today's consortium news, it was us, it was the U.S., it was our secret services. It's clear, okay? Now, if the, the German in, <laughs> inspector is told to just bend with what the Swedes, vassals of NATO now, and the Danes, vassals of NATO now, to bend with what they say, and he comes back and says, oh, yeah, we don't know. It was sure the way he beats the hell out of us. <laughs> you know, that's going to be laughable. Uh, why they excluded the Russians? Well, you know, a sophomore in, in high school could figure that one out. And this is, you know, if it's publicized, which it will not be in the West, of course, it's, it gives another black eye to the people who arranged this. Now, I would add one caveat. Did Biden know this would happen? Did Biden know that the U.S. special services or the U.K. special services or whoever they hired to do this were going to do it? I don't know. But I think it's an equal possibility that they gave him what the intelligence people call plausible deniability. In other words, if you do these things, you think you don't think the president will want you to do it anyway, but you don't tell him, then he has the ability to deny that he ever knew what was going on. The only problem with that is that Biden is then going to face, not going to face into the, uh, the deep state. He's not going to say, oh, you guys went on your own, you're all fired. He has no... <laughs> He has no opportunity to do that. And so uh, he's caught he's caught by the short hairs, to use a, a Bronx expression. And um, it, it's going to play out in such a way that not even John Brennan will be able to contend. <laughs> it was the, the Russians that shot themselves in the foot uh, by blowing up their own pipeline.
or trying to. Biden says he has no intention of meeting with Putin about Ukraine. And not that anybody really thought that he would, but I believe that he should. And this is, I think, the difference between a politician and a statesman. And this made me think about the conversation we had with you yesterday about the Cuban Missile Crisis and what Kennedy did, which then makes me think about, I think it was Lloyd Benson who said to Dan Quayle, you're no Jack Kennedy. Joe Biden, you're no Jack Kennedy. Yeah. uh, Sadly, we have no statesmen around now. We have a bunch of unrealistic uh, elite uh, people who have a, uh, you know, that five decades behind in their appreciation of what the Russians used to call the correlation of forces. Uh, you know, it, there is a big difference between now and 1962, a bigger difference than 60 years would, uh, would denote. Um, in 62, we had contacts. We had Kennedy talking with Khrushchev. My friend Jack Matlock was translating uh, the Russian messages, putting them on the teletype uh, in Moscow, Embassy Moscow, coming back to the U.S. And they were able to figure out, do we really want to blow up the rest of the world? No, we don't. So let's figure out a way out of this thing. And they did. Kennedy said, all right, we're not going to invade Cuba. We'll pull all those troops out of Key West. Now, uh, if you if you bring those, if you take those missiles out, then Soto Voce, after that agreement, and after Khrushchev started taking those missiles out, uh, the U.S. agreed with Russia to pull out this Jupiter missiles in Turkey, uh, just so that Khrushchev could satisfy his military that he got a quid for this, he got a quo for this quid, and the thing settled down. Now, those missiles were armed, Okay. So the the way we can the reason we can talk about these things today is that <laughs> Kennedy and Khrushchev worked it out. Did Kennedy threaten nuclear war? He did. Were we very close to it? We were. Did the military want it very much? They did. And Kennedy faced them down without getting us all killed. Now, is Biden able to do that? Well, I don't think the Russians, the Russians have to resort to nuclear weapons. It's no requirement for them to do it. It would be stupid for them to do it in Ukraine. They are going to win anyway on the ground. So has anybody told Biden that? If that's the case, if that's the case, then the option of using nuclear weapons would have to rely on, would have to avert to something like a false flag done by whom? done by the Anglo-Saxons, the same guys who blew up the pipes, who blew up the bridges. You know. So this is a very, very, lab- very labile, the Germans say, very tentative, very ice- dicey time where uh, before the midterms, with only four weeks left, what's Biden going to do when Putin keeps, keeps bombing the hell out of the infrastructure in Ukraine? Will he come to a census or will he, as he has been quoted uh, in overheard conversations, say no one F word, no one F word S's with with Biden's. All right. And we're going to do just like we do to the Chinese. We're going to say if you invade Taiwan with the Chinese have no intention of doing, 
we're going to send our boys and girls over there to make sure you win. We win, okay? Is he going to do that now before the midterms? Well, he probably will. Uh, what happens after the midterms is uh, anybody's guess. But we're losing. Uh, most Americans think we're winning. That's a very volatile mix. We've been talking with Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Go to RayMcGovern.com for all of his latest work. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. International security observers are concerned that the U.S. may be planning to invade Haiti. Also, the Haitian people have taken to the streets in massive protests to push back against the possibility of a U.S.-led foreign military assault. Joining us now to discuss these stories, we have Dan Kavalik. He's a writer, an author, and a lawyer. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Al Jazeera is reporting Haitians push for local solutions as insecurity and violence soars. Civil society groups reject Haiti's prime minister's call for foreign intervention, warning not to repeat the same mistakes. Your thoughts, Dan Kavalik? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I think the uh, U.S. has invaded Haiti more than any other country, and uh, that it might do it again is pretty disturbing. The U.S. would be going in to support a leader, I hate to call him a president because he wasn't elected, um, that was put in place after the duly elected president was assassinated by Colombian paramilitaries. You know, so this is very, very concerning, and I think people should be up in arms about this. The United States play here is what, what I would consider to be almost uh, like controlled chaos. C controlled instability. They don't want the Haitians to rule themselves. They are trying their best to impose their will on Haiti. And it seems as though the United States is, is content with this instability until the, I guess the United States can figure out a way to make this thing work. Yeah. Well, they've had, you're right. I mean, you know, they went through a period of supporting these brutal dictators in Haiti, uh, the Duvaliers, Papa Doc and Baby Doc. Then they, as you say, they seem to have more recently opted for chaos in Haiti and other countries as well. It's, it, as well. it does seem like Correct. the U.S. foreign policy goal at this moment, they've decided that chaos works better for them in terms of being able to control another country. So, yeah, I agree that I think that they will be happy with a basically stateless Haiti uh, for as long as that works for them. 
And and it sounds to me like, you know, you were wondering what their play was going to be. And it sounds to me like they've been building up this for a while. Oh, there's gangs. Oh, the gangs and kidnappings. Now that I see what they're doing now, it seems to me that this propaganda was a buildup to it about these terrible gangs in Haiti. And now they go in with the usual altruistic, we're going to protect the Haitian people from these terrible gangs that are abusing them. And in come the Marines and they bomb and kill lots of innocent Haiti Haitians. And then of course, they steal their resources, Dan. It seems to me that's the play. Yeah. And of course, the irony is we have deadly gangs on the streets of the United States that no one is protecting people from. Right. I mean, again, the, the reason that, that Haiti has these deadly gangs is because, one, the U.S. has supported some of them. Right. It's supported some of these deadly paramilitary groups that have morphed into gangs, but also because the U.S. has prevented Haiti from having stable governments. It's overthrown popular governments like that of Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide, right? So the U.S. creates these unstable conditions and then tries to justify those conditions for intervention. I mean, it's just absurd, really. Is it possible that the change in mindset in the global South as uh Brazil now looks to be going, uh, hopefully with Lula will go another way. We see what's happened in Bolivia, uh, Colombia, where the hit squads came out of and were trained by the United States. Could the leaders in the global south step in and fill this vacuum in Haiti? Well, I think that that is certainly on the table. I mean, Biden is making noise that they made you know, the U.S. may try to do that. I don't think it's going to be easy to fill the vacuum. I mean, I think things are in very difficult straits in Haiti. Um, and I do think the people, they are tired. They're, they're very tired of the interventions. They're very tired of being ruled by people that do not have their interest at heart. Uh, I don't think the U.S. will have an easy time if they send. No, 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 no. I, I, no, I don't. I don't think my question was clear. What, what, what I, what I was asking was: Is it possible that some of the new leadership in the global South could step in and fill the void and allow the Haitian people to rule themselves? With, for example, you had Venezuela with the Petro Carib Fund. They were helping Haiti. Now you've oh, yeah. got a shift in Colombia where the hit squads came out of. Th- this, we now have a different government in Colombia. They could step in. So that that was my question. Yeah, well, they can step in to help to give resources. But I don't know. I think that, you know, really, and that's good. And they should do those things. But ultimately, it's going to be up to the Haitian people to be able to rule themselves and create a government that can bring some stability. I don't think the global south is going to intervene to do something in particular about that, nor do I think they should. Right. I mean, it's really the Haitians have to do that themselves. But, yeah, I certainly think countries like Colombia, Venezuela, hopefully Brazil under Lula, if he's elected. Exactly. Exactly. Will give some important help at least give the resources Haiti needs to keep the lights on and get people fed. And that that in itself will bring certain amount of stability. But in the end, the Haitians have to be able to be left alone to, you know, to organize their own government. 
There's two stories I'm going to put together. One of them is in Common Dreams, and it's called Thousands in Haiti Protest Government Call for Foreign Military Intervention. When you look down, that you find out that they had demonstrations, and it says police responded to the demonstrations by firing tear gas. Several people were shot, and at least one person was killed. So we see that police violence. Now let's go to this other article, U.S. News. U.S. to support Haiti police and deliver aid to counter gangs. So the concern is, and I think there's a, this is a significant concern, that, you know, sometimes the the U.S., they don't just um, send soldiers in. They train your police. Oftentimes they use the Israelis to train brutal, uh, the same brutal tactics that they use for the Palestinians. So they will, if they don't send, that's this is the other part. What if the U.S. doesn't send troops, but they train all of these Haitian troops, they arm them with all the abusive stuff, and then they pay them and say, okay, go on in and take out whoever it is they want to take out. That's the other game that's often played. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, it is. And again, we have played that game in Haiti for quite some time. In fact, uh, we did support these paramilitary forces that overthrew Aristide. I believe it was in the year 1994. I think we and, overthrew him yeah. twice. Yes. And then, of course, we overthrew him in 2004 directly by just kidnapping him and sending him to the Central African Republic. So, yeah, we overthrew him twice. But the first time was through these paramilitaries being armed uh, by the Clinton administration and other administrations before him. So, yeah, I'm certain that that is part of the game uh, plan as well. And, of course, well, you know, in truth, we supported the Colombian paramilitaries who murdered the president of Haiti, <laughs> you know, um, not even, what, a year ago. Uh, so clearly that's also part of the plan. I mean, the U.S. is always going to want to use proxies over its own troops. I mean, case in point being Ukraine, for example. It would rather other people die in their wars than their own people. So the Common Dreams piece says gang violence has escalated since July of 2021's assassination of Jovenel Moise. And now Henri requests for foreign military intervention. But Henri is the U.S. puppet. So basically what you have is the U.S., asking the U.S. for foreign military intervention as it comes to battle more than 150 armed gangs who, by the way, are armed by the United States and their interests. Yeah, it's a total setup, you know. And again, this is a game the U.S. plays. It has some surrogate ask the U.S. to intervene, you know, but it really... Uh, this this leader in Haiti is nothing but a puppet of the U.S. to begin with. So uh, one can't take that request very seriously. And it, it, it looks like from the people on the streets in Haiti that the people of Haiti do not want that type of intervention because they know what it means. They know it will be an intervention that leads to more repression and more degradation of the Haitian people. And, you know, Dan, the thing about it is there's been protests going on, massive protests going on. Again, this is part of the propaganda, propaganda by omission. The failure of the U.S. media to cover the protest and the failure, even the protests that are going on now, the failure to properly cover them and to relate to the American people what it is 
that they're protesting about. There are people now that I know that I've asked recently, they're like, oh, yeah, they're protesting the crime and the gangs. I'm like, no, they're not. (laughs) They're protesting that their problems are caused by U.S. intervention, and they're protesting because they don't have democracy. And not covering these protests for the last couple of years was a form of propaganda by omission. Your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, well, and that's been true for many, many years. Haiti is uh, one of the undercovered countries. I mean, first of all, it's one that is in very close proximity to the United States. And therefore, and we have many Haitians living in the United States. So it certainly deserves a lot of attention for no other reason, right? But it also deserves a lot of attention because of the fact the U.S. intervenes there so often. But because of the interventions, that's the reason that the press will not cover it, because it doesn't want to expose what the U.S. has been doing there, which has been absolutely devastating to the people of Haiti. And so all that is is swept under the rug, right? And so they, they will panic about a Russian invasion of Ukraine and stand with Ukraine, but no one's going to be standing with Haiti, is my guess, or not many people, uh, when the U.S. goes into there. And it's a shame because it's not being covered. And what also would have to be uncovered, if it's covered, is what happened to all the money that was sent into Haiti in the first term of the Obama administration when he put Bill Clinton and George Bush, which were insults to the Haitian people, in charge of the Haitian Relief Project. Yeah, a lot of those a lot of those monies really just went into the coffers of these so-called NGOs, right? Uh, including the Clinton Foundation itself. In fact, I if you ever if you look at an aerial foot aerial photo of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, which I have seen recently, you'll see the entire city devastated still from the 2010 earthquake, all rubble except for one giant building, and that's the Clinton Foundation building, right? So all this has been a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, just to go to the NGOs, to staff and their accommodations, and really not to the Haitian people. Of course, the most famous example of this was the, and this is well documented, the International uh, Committee for the Red Cross, which got a billion dollars for Haiti. And a total of six homes were built by the Red Cross out of that a billion dollars. Wow. Six homes for a billion dollars. That's, that's, and that's well documented. Wow. Yeah. And those must be that's, beautiful that's homes. Your, that's your aid <laughs> money at work, my friend. We've been talking with Dan Kavalik. He's a writer, author, lawyer, and professor. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Amazon has a new home robot, and many fear that it may be used for more than just ordering items. Also, PayPal's scheme to punish users with massive fines have backfired. Joining us now to discuss these stories, we have Steve Porkinen. He's a national organizer for Action for Assange. He's also the host of Slow News Day every morning, Monday through Friday, on rockfin.com. That's R-O-K-F-I-N.com forward slash Slow News Day. Steve Poikinen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to be here. 
Well, well, well. <clears throat> Exciting news. Amazon has created a new robot, the Astro, to spy on people in their homes. And this one is smarter and sneakier than Alexa. Oh, boy, there's a new robot and you can get it and it can hang around your house from Amazon. Steve Porkin, and your thoughts? I, I think really, I think its name is Chucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comes Quick. with a butcher knife. Uh, exactly. New from Amazon's eavesdrop division. Uh, I did, you know, they named it Astro right after the Jetsons dog, uh, who I don't believe worked for the NSA or was a snitch. So that in and of itself is tragic. But if they didn't even, they're not giving us Rosie, who was, you know, the helpful robot uh, who dispensed advice along with snacks and things like that. No, they're giving you the, the tracking robot. They're, it is. It's beyond creepy because this thing also links to uh, to Ring. This thing has direct back doors to any law enforcement agency that has the website to access it. We found this out a few weeks ago. Um, you don't even have to have a warrant to access any individual Ring camera or Amazon product. You just have to know. You just have to be a law enforcement officer who has access to the website. So the odds of this being used in ways uh, that, that are completely extra legal, um, Google 40% of cops, if you want to get for stalking and things like that, um, astronomical, uh, along with all of the obvious surveillance consequences. This I find to be really, really interesting the way they lay this out. They say, with new technology, people always argue it's fine at first. Like Roomba, for instance, people thought it was just a vacuum robot. It wasn't up to anything, right? Then, as reported by Vice, we found that Amazon bought Roomba so they could map the inside of your house. That, to yeah. me, speaks volumes about how forward-thinking these individuals really are and that there are no accidents here. Well, no, and, and it's not just that they're mapping their house in case, you know, the horrible circumstance of some uh, law enforcement agency needs to go in it, and they might want to find out where you're hiding something. It's also that if they have the dimensions of your house, they can target market you way easier. They, they can specifically send you ads for something that will fit just right into that corner or the type of bed sheet that you need or whatever it is. It's all about building a consumer profile of you, uh, along with the ability to uh, to use anything that you put out there against you in the eventuality that it's going to happen. There's a thing right now where Twitter yanked some kid's account because he yelled at AOC yesterday, and it went viral because of her Ukraine vote. And so now that kid doesn't have his Twitter account. It's, you know, it's, except for this time, it would be in your house. It's also a matter of desensitization, that they get you used to certain concepts, certain constructs, and then they build upon those to your detriment. The ATM card, getting you used to using that piece of plastic to move you and prepare you for a cashless society. I mean, these are all desensitization aspects of, of technology. Oh no, you're you're absolutely correct, and it's just it's further separating us from uh, 
I don't the, the humanness of our existence. Uh, if you're more and more and more reliant on technology and less and less reliant on people, uh, you tend to get programmed into being more comfortable with isolation. Uh, you're more susceptible then to marketing and propaganda. It's a, a fairly, fairly vicious cycle. Well, let's not forget a while back, we got a couple of things. Amazon Alexa, there was a, a case a while back in Seattle where someone had an Alexa in their house and the Alexa actually emailed the conversations of that was going on in that house, basically like recording them, turning them into an email and sent them to someone else. Accidentally. We also know Ring, which Amazon bought the Ring, uh, 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 doorbell Ring things. But Ring has now signed a agreement with like 400 police departments so that they can access the video in the event, so we're told, of some kind of a criminal activity uh, in, in, the, in the neighborhood. So it kind of starts off with, hey, don't you want this in your house? And then you wake up one day and you and basically if you've got one of these Zumba things it can map out your house. You got a ring up front. They're looking right out your front door. Now you got a robot following you around. I mean, they can tell how many times you went to the bathroom in a given day. Steve. On the plus side, Alexa will talk to you in the voice of your dead granny. Oh, we'll read you a story (laughs) nighttime. So that's, that's sweet and not at all creepy. Uh, And, and Peter Thiel, by the way, is involved uh, to the eyeballs in that ice ring camera deal. Um, there's a, a company that he has that helped make that whole thing go forward. So it's all one big happy oligarch surveillance fest. Uh, yes, you're correct. And don't forget that your phone spies on you, too. Uh, thanks to Vault 7, we know that your TV can spy on you or any of your smart devices can spy on you. Uh, it is it is a a track trace society. It is uh, and it's the, at the the most benevolent thing it's used for is marketing, target marketing, and then it just increases in insidiousness from there. PayPal's dystopian financial censorship scheme backfires. PayPal, one of the biggest digital finance companies, bought the popular platform. And they published a disturbing borderline dystopian, quote unquote, misinformation policy, promising to fine users who commit speech crimes. So now not only are you being deplatformed, but you can be fined without due process. Boy, I miss the old days when PayPal just robbed you instead (laughs) of fined you. I, I mean, this is something that let's not forget. PayPal was uh, was the first company to shut down uh, the ability for WikiLeaks to take payments back in uh, in 2010, 2011, 2011, 2012. Sorry, um, but PayPal was company number one. They've been on the front lines of preventing people from making a living uh, if they have an opinion outside of the narrative. PayPal. Uh, took money from my co-host on Slow Newsday, Glory Jones, when she sent a $5 contribution to Richard Medhurst and uh, and put in the note, I think it was a hosta siempre or something like that. And they were like, oh, well, you can't do that because you're promoted Cuban revolutionary violence. So we're going to put this payment on hold. And that was three years ago. The Washington Examiner article that we're talking about makes a point to 
say that PayPal has targeted people on the right. They've targeted people on the left. They've targeted people with no political affiliation like WikiLeaks going back a decade. This is who this company is. So I, I don't um, I don't necessarily know why people are, are just recently surprised by it, but I'm glad that people have decided to, yeah, I guess, vote with their wallets on this. And I know people that left PayPal in droves. I would encourage them to keep doing it. Well, you know, and, and I think that last part is what's important, and that is we're starting to see, you know, actions, kind of movement-style actions where PayPal or Company X does something, and it not just the people out here who are content creators, be it on Rockfin or YouTube or whatever, saying, I don't want any, I don't want that, but the people who are also you know, part of that community, the people who are watching this stuff all look at it. And now we've got like a kind of movement stuff. It's kind of like activism where large swaths of people are saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I don't like that and I'm going to do something about it. I'm out of PayPal. And I think that's a very positive development uh, for, for going forward, Steve. Your thoughts? Well, I completely agree. And this is sort of flash mob style activism where it happens so quickly and under, you know, the, in such a short amount of time that the impact is immediately recognizable and overwhelming. And that's the kind of thing that has to continue to happen if we're going to see any kind of easing in the sort of I, absolutely totalitarian movements that these companies are making. If they're going to disallow us to have a voice, if they're going to disallow us to make a living because we're not simply repeating propaganda. Uh, I, we, I mean, we live in, in Orwell, and, and I refuse to do that, um, at least willingly. You may not use the PayPal service for activities that involve the sending, posting, or publication of any messages, content, or materials that, in PayPal's sole discretion, promote misinformation. That's their policy. And again, there's no due process. No, no, there's no due process. It, it's the same uh, de determined by either algorithm or whatever personal vendetta the person on the other end uh, of the algorithm has at any given moment. There's no arbitration system. There's no uh, the only way that you can resolve this is by removing your you know, removing yourself from that service. Uh, and I, I, again, I can only encourage that. There are multiple other ways to move money. There's multiple other ways to support and help people. Uh, we've seen Gibson or not Gibson go uh, GoFundMe's get shut down. We've seen this happen with PayPal. We've seen it happen with Venmo. Uh, we've seen it happen with Stripe payments. It, this is an ongoing battle. It is, uh, it's a, effectively whack-a-mole. Um, it's hopefully driving innovation <laughs> in terms of how we can move money. Uh, but it's something that we have to constantly be aware of. Yeah, and, and, and uh, what we're seeing, too, is wherein these so-called alleged ostensible private corporations are attacking our right to speech. But, you know, the, the thing about it is, have you noticed, I mean, Alan McLeod's done a lot of good work over at Mint Press on uh, news on this. When we look at these, uh, you know, when we pull up the hood and we look under the hood on these private corporations, we always seem to find that they've hired a bunch of ex-CIA and, and, and ex-FBI people and DOJ people, and they're not as private as they would have us believe. 
No, they're not. And then thanks to Alan and a handful of other people, uh, we know that there's direct communication between the White House and uh, these departments and social media companies that are ultimately responsible for yanking whatever information they've deemed to be uh, unworthy <laughs> or untoward. Uh, there, there's again to talk about lack of a, uh, you know, lack of any sort of legal recourse or process by which to defend yourself or get uh, an account or money or anything back. It, this is 100% zero middleman. Somebody and, uh, you know, the Biden administration picks up a phone, somebody on Twitter, or Facebook or Meta answers the other end. And then, boom, within minutes, <laughs> accounts are gone. Livelihoods are, are damaged, if not erased financially. Um, that's not a private organization. That's an arm of the government. And that's, again, goes back to the desensitization aspect of a lot of this, because when we first got on the Facebook and whatnot, it was innocuous. It was just a, a good time. And now we find out there's a price to pay. Well, with any free online service, you are always the product. Uh, and it, when it comes to speech, they've definitely put a price on that. Alex Jones is going to have to pay almost a billion dollars. And what that does is have a chilling effect in the exact same way that locking up Julian Assange has a chilling effect in the exact same way that the murder of Michael Hastings had a chilling effect. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The Sackler family, you know, the the, the, the whole, uh, you know, that drug scandal with the Sackler family, it ended up, I think, $600 million in fines. And Alex mm -hmm. Jones has $300 million fines more than people who cost literally millions of lives around the world. Kind of interesting. Steve Boykin's the national organizer for Action for Assange. He's also the host of Slow News Day. It's on rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com. Kind of like YouTube, only better. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.